Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Lord Owen is one of the great figures of British politics, the youngest ever foreign secretary, co-founder and leader of the SDP, author of more than a dozen books with another one on the way, I understand, um, holder of any number of prestigious titles, and, and one of the key figures in building a cross-party coalition for Brexit. So um, let's uh, let's start with Europe, actually. Um, in, in 1972, you and Roy Jenkins resigned because you felt that Labour wasn't pro-European enough. And in the years that follow, you essentially go on the same same journey as the country. You become one of the few social democrats who's also a Eurosceptic. You, you lead the new, new Europe movement, which keeps us out of the Euro. And then you come out for leave at a point when it's very much not the done thing to, to do so. Yes, I think 72 was an interesting one. I think the earlier, really, I, it was when we actually voted against the Free Line Whip the year before. But there was a big disagreement and funnily enough, between Roy and I, actually during the point we were resigning. And I got to such a point, I was trying to persuade him that we should accept the idea that had come up from Tony Benn, that we should bind the party together, because Labour was hopelessly split, with a referendum. And I was in favour of the referendum. And but I was, you'd, you'd have been on the pro side this time. I would have been on the pro side. And I was on the pro side in 1975. But the idea of using a referendum to solve uh, your problems which within your party, which was, of course, the fatal decision that um, David Cameron took in 2013, had its basis, really, in this argument that went on in the uh, shadow cabinet of Wilson government in 72. And Wilson changed his position. Callaghan changed his position. And uh, the national executive and the cabinet, the shadow cabinet, changed their position uh, and came out in favour of a referendum. But Roy opposed it. Roy's best argument was, if you have to have a referendum, which we probably will have to, let it come after we're in, because you're more likely to win, which is actually the best argument for it. But I was uh, facing a marginal seat and I thought we needed to heal the wounds of the Labour Party then and there in 72. And in fact, of course, he did provide us with a manifesto on which we could rally round. Uh, but I was failing to convince Roy. And at one stage I said to him, 
Look, Roy, I'm not arguing about resigning. I mean, I've told you, and I say it again, I'm going to resign with you anyhow. This argument's not going to solve it. If you uh, reach an agreement with the majority of us that we should oppose the referendum, I'm very happy to, which is exactly what happened. But I, have, I never changed my mind. I always thought that the referendum was a good way, and the only way, actually, but one in 74. If we hadn't had that in our manifesto, we wouldn't have been pulling together. And you can argue that it, uh, the Conservatives wouldn't have won in 2015 unless they'd had this commitment in their manifesto. I think there's a lot of truth in it. So there is a huge continuity between 1972 and 2013. Yes, but, but the continuity in your case is, is that you're on, the, you're on the other side of the argument. Yes. Well, I was uh, nevertheless ready to recognize on both occasions that the only way we could resolve the divisions in the Labour Party and the Conservative Party over a, a substantial period of years was by letting the people choose and the referendum choose. And I never had any doubt, and nor did Wilson or Callaghan in 1975, that if the vote had been to go out, we would have gone out. I mean, actually, during the uh, referendum campaign, in the official history of this period, you have the uh, somebody from the cabinet secretary, um, very able and senior civil servant, saying, well, you won't need to do much if the election referendum result was to be uh, coming out. We wouldn't need to act very quickly. And Callaghan, in the midst of the referendum campaign, chips in because he's effectively in charge of it. And he says, no, that's nonsense. We would have to, at the very least, repeal the European Communities Act of 1972. And here we are, effectively, today, repealing the European Community Act of 1972. And there was never any doubt that you should do that. Yes, I mean, because you've written about, or endorsed at least, the idea of the, a clean Brexit. I mean, do you still think that that's the best option, or are you happy to go along the negotiating? Well, I have made my views not very clear about what is the negotiation, <laughs> and quite deliberately. I, I believe the government is entitled to keep its cards close to its chest. You cannot enter into an international treaty negotiation and expect the House of Commons to dictate the terms under which you will or will not settle. You have to vest that authority in normally the Foreign Secretary. And you come back, of course, but the choice is uh, accept or reject. It is not amend or vote it down and go back again. I mean, this is, these are quite ludicrous positions, and I don't know why on earth they were given the time of day, frankly, and they shouldn't have been. So, I mean, the issue is, in my view, the country's made up its mind. We have our remit. It has always been clear to me that the government would do the negotiating. This attempt for some people to try and pretend during the referendum that the various leave or remain groups' positions were important. They were important in winning the vote, but they weren't going to settle the terms. That's going to be done by the government. Yes. And I must say, uh, it has been an extraordinary journey. I, I, I'm, I'm no conservative, never voted conservative in my life, no intention of starting. But the way the Conservative Party managed to have this extraordinary resolution. I mean, first you have Cameron telling us all that he's going to stay and negotiate, which was also Wilson and uh, Callaghan's position. 
but they meant it, they were going to. Then waltzing off at seven o'clock in the morning after the referendum, absolutely empty cabinets, uh, no piece of paper, even, as I understand it, about what the yeah. consequences and, uh, of In fact, I, I understand that someone went to see the American, someone in Washington went to see the State Department and said, so what are your plans for Brexit? And they said, oh, we don't have any because we've been told it's not going to happen. Yes, well, I think this was the way we got into the sort of the absence of serious politicians. If you were not a home Syria, in my view, you shouldn't be in politics. But we've had now Cameron Blair, entirely public relations. Now, now, it's not about serious decisions. You don't have arguments in cabinet committees on paper, and you don't have a deliberation and things. So we waltzed into this referendum. We now know the Chancellor Exchequer against it, Prime Minister in favour of it, no uh, papers, no substance, and no Prime Minister, suddenly, and no Mr Osborne. Theresa May didn't have a choice. After Cameron told the House of Commons and the country that we were going to do Article 50, and he would do it straight away if there had been a... I don't know how he would have done it straight away, but we were saddled with it. I think the way to come out of this treaty would have been to use the Vienna Conventions and not walk into a absolute snaffle. I mean, basically, it has within it, most people think, a cliff edge. Actually, I think there is a way in which we can have a transitional arrangement. I, mean, I was wondering, have you sort of suffered any social consequences from your, your support relief? Because, I mean, there's an argument that without you, we don't actually end up leaving. It's because you and Gisela Stewart are, are as I understand it, you're, you're thinking of setting up your own sort of progressive social democrat organization to be allied to vote leave. And then you end up actually saying, okay, no, we're going to go in with you guys, which allows them to say that we're cross party to get the electoral designation so that you don't have Nigel Farage as the face of the campaign. Well, I don't think I was terribly important, except on one issue is that I did um, make the decision with Gisela to do it. But Gisela was my hope and belief. I mean, she's young and effective and I'm an O'Fark. So uh, it, it, it's no question I couldn't play the role which I believe wanted to play. And I don't think I could have done anywhere near as well as Gisela. I think she was absolutely perfect for it. But did you lose any friendships over during the campaign or, or afterwards? I honestly think I've only lost one uh, friend and that was great sadness. But there we are, that's it. Uh, I've obviously had strained relationships and I tested and strained good friends and I regret that deeply and I think they showed great tolerance of me and uh, I respect that. Also I have deliberately given some friends space in time. Uh, They're grieving and I understand that. This is a huge, huge rebuff for people who lifelong Europeans who find they have now had their dreams and their visions rejected by the people and their own fellow citizens. But for you, it could never, it ultimately could never work. I mean, we were talking, your, your new book you were saying is about the, the Franco-German axis and how ultimately Britain could never, that, that's always been what's, what's driven the European project. 
When I was Foreign Secretary, very early on, a note came in from the Prime Minister, we're going to have one day meeting, all day meeting in the Cabinet, and I want you, David, to write the papers, not the Foreign Office. And so we did have that, and I did write the papers. We got together a group of people, Tom McNally from the Cabinet Office, and very close to Jim, and had been an advisor for him when he was now a Liberal Democrat, and uh, other people all helped. But it, it, it is a strategy for a non-federalist Europe. And I still believe we could pull that off. And we failed. That is the fundamental thing. And we failed, of course, because of the Treaty of Maastricht. And I still retain my faith that it was possible to have a non-federalist European Union in the Balkans. I mean, there were difficulties and everything like that, but I've got no complaints of the support I had from initially the uh, 12 and then the 15 uh, European countries. We were uh, putting a European policy against the Americans, basically. They wanted to lift and strike, but had no idea what the hell to do. So this, this was during the breakup of the Yugoslavia, where you were the... Yugoslavia. I was the EU representative. I think it was when the Eurozone started to show its basic fundamental flaws that I started to gingerly look at the Eurozone and we formed New Europe in uh, 1999. I believe, really, Nigel Lawson is the only one of us, all of us, around in senior politics who spotted the moment when it all went wrong. And that was on the single act. And he sent to Margaret Thatcher two memos in November uh, 1986, which were deeply perceptive and pleaded with her, do not commit in the single act, which came a treaty, to any wording which has a European monetary union in, because they will use it, which is exactly what they did. And that is the whole European method. You squeeze in a little commitment saying it means nothing, and you build on it. This is whole Monet's style. And we consistently underestimate it. We keep trying to pretend that they are not aiming for a European state. Yes, and, when, and when we get our bit of language about subsidiarity, we, we don't, it goes nowhere. Yes, nowhere. They are very, very skilled at this whole thing. And they believe in crisis. So it doesn't, and has never troubled these people, that there would be a crisis in the Eurozone. I think many of them are clever enough to realise it. After all, the Bundesbank, was totally and absolutely opposed to it. Every single one of the Bundesbank's arguments against it. So in retrospect, I didn't hold that view at the time, uh, and I regret it. I think we should have voted down the Treaty of Maastricht. But I mean, watching what's been happening to Greece. I mean, I'm a social democrat. I believe in the social market. Where's the social policy in allowing unemployment amongst under 25-year-olds in Spain to be up to near 60%, in Greece near 60%, Portugal 50 and still is immensely high. What's the socialism of that? I mean, I, I've always believed that you have to have a social policy which is public and is delivered on conscience and principles and a market which is international and has to be competitive and you have to have it pretty ruthless and uh, very, very uh, 
conscious of its price and delivery if you're going to sell in the markets of the world. So I have no problem at all. That's what the SDP initially was going to do, is to balance these factors. You take the profits of the market, the fruits of prosperity, and you use them to... Yes. So you don't have any nonsense about national health services saying you can't afford it. Of course you can afford it. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous. I mean, the figures are all cooked by them. I want a Labour government to return to Narin Bevan's health service. And I can do this now because I've no longer got European competition law and all the other things and the TTIP, which is thankfully dropped. But these things were deliberate obstacles to being able to revert back. Now, I'm, I yes, think a little bit of retro politics would be a very good thing. Yes, so I'm not on the. I'm not a Tory. I'm not supporting all this on any way related to Tory policies. I will fight very hard to protect workers' rights and things like that. I actually don't think a Theresa May party will go down this so-called right-wing agenda of uh, removing all safeguards to that have been won by trade unions over many, many years. I think many conservatives actually believe that most of them are right, some of them which they opposed. So I, I don't know, but we'll say it. But you won't hear a speech from Theresa May without this word fairness used. Well, I will hold her to account on that. Well, so this is the question I was going to ask. You talked about you, know, you wanted a Labour government to save the NHS, but we're not going to get a Labour government for... Well, not, if, if not until 19... Uh, not until 2020. Which, which, I don't yeah. even rule out we can win in 2020. You, you say we. I mean, do you still see yourself... Yes, I'm a social democrat. I, I sit as an independent social democrat. I gave money to Ed Miliband's effort to win, and I think if he had a well-worked-out view of how he would operate with the SNP he could have even won that election. He was left completely unable to answer the question when the Tories did the usual ritual thing of banging at him. He should have turned to Cameron. He should have actually slightly lost his temper, shown some emotion, as he did when people attacked his father. I'd say, I'm not going to be giving lectures to my David Cameron, of all people, who spent the last five years in a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. I'm as entitled to have a coalition with the SNP as uh, he was with the Liberal Democrats. But he kept on saying it ain't going to happen. It, was, it ain't going to happen. It was perfectly obvious it was going to happen, that the SNP and the SNP will be vital for Labour to win uh, as a government in 2020. So you're not. So I mean, there's an interesting parallel here because we're. I think we're, is it true? This is the house where the Limehouse declaration. Yes, you know, this is. You know, this, this is Limehouse. This is yeah. where the, the declaration yes, happened. And, the, yeah. and obviously, quite a lot of people are looking back to that and saying, "Well, should you know?" There's a cautionary tale there because they walked out. They, you formed a new party. You got a quarter of the yeah. vote, but because of the voting system, you got. You they got should. Happened. They should not leave. Those Labour people are unhappy. They shouldn't leave because it's very different. We were just able to scrape 28 Labour MPs to go, and one Conservative, to go into uh, the SDP. But these have about, well over 100, and in one stage on the Trident vote, they had 170. So they've got a very substantial section of the Parliamentary Party, and they must stick together and fight it out, and with very good prospect that uh, Jeremy Corbyn will probably, and in my view, rightly shift some of the policies to the left. Don't write off the Labour Party, even now. They can get back. (laughs) 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you about hubris syndrome and your, mm. your recent writing, but it, it sort of strikes me as a parallel. I mean, do you think Europe has become, in fact, the sort of Brussels elite has become affected by a sort of collective hubris syndrome? This is this idea that, you know, that, that power goes to your head. And, you know. I think they're actually demoralised, actually. I don't think they're hubristic. I think they know the thing's not working. They don't know what to do. I think my criticism of Europe now, I mean... Before I finally made my decision, I went to Berlin with David Marsh, who was actually the journalist who wrote easily the best book on the history of the era. He, he, he I think, on balance voted for Remain. But we went everywhere in Berlin. We spoke to everybody, and I spoke to a big conference of um, uh, chambers of commerce. And I left thinking... There's no chance these people are going to do a Eurozone reform because they're afraid of it. They're afraid of fiscal transfers. They're afraid of bringing, uh, making, opening up in any way the Lisbon Treaty. They're afraid of, they're stuck. And decent, serious people, they know what they have to do, but they can't do it. They haven't got the political consensus in Germany for it. And then looking around with the rest of the European Union. So, I mean, you said about a clean break. Uh, Nigel Lawson, I wrote an article very early on after the vote in City AM, and we were, you know, full of worry, and I think since then greater, that can these people negotiate a treaty? Have they got the decision-making capacity? I mean, they've known what they ought to be doing about Greece. They've been completely unable to make the decision. It was Juncker himself. You know, we all know what we need to do. We just don't know how to win an election afterwards. It's a dysfunctional structure. It's far too large. I mean, you've only got to look at them all sitting around 27. I think there's a very real fear that I have. They can't negotiate credibly a settlement with us now. I think it's very likely that we will find a situation where we can't get through. It might even get through 
the initial offer, and then it goes to the parliament. It could be rejected. We know what happens. That's not a proper European. It's not a proper parliament. It doesn't have the real authority of its own people. Most people don't relate to it in any way at all. Or then it has to go through ratification. So, I mean, I, again, it's why I wouldn't have ever used this Article 50. It's, it's, it's a trap by a very clever diplomat who understands, was the architect of the constitutional treaty. So, it's interesting. So, you, you've just been sort of saying that, you know, the, the, the EU is too sort of, there's, there's too many people involved to make proper decisions. But equally, a, a sort of big strand of your career and, and thinking recently seems to have been a, a sort of a, a, the opposite, a sort of a worry about one person making making all the decisions. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't think you can possibly compare it to, but I think there are great difficulties of making decisions across states, across nations, on uh, qualified majority voting. I, yes, I do. I believe NATO works because it's a consensus organization. I think across international organizations, you have to be very, very careful about taking votes. Now, on the, inside a government, that's a different thing. I have just written a book on... Uh, well, so this, yes, this is what I was getting at. The, the, yeah, the, the, the final star. Um, Cabinet's final star. And it is an analysis of the discussions between five members of the War Cabinet. And... Um, I'm a tremendous believer in collective decision-making. Sometimes it's appropriate in wartime to be down to five or seven. Sometimes it's the full cabinet. Uh, sometimes it's a, a mixture. And sometimes it's parliament itself, House of Commons. So, so, you, so you, don't, you don't think Theresa May has fallen victim to your, your syndrome yet? No, I doubt she ever will. And is it? I, mean, I don't know anything so, about her. I've never met her. I mean, she hadn't been in the House of Commons by the time I'd left. But I can see quality when I see it. Uh, I think she's a real Tory, I may say. I think she's an interesting Tory too. I think there's um, people around her are very interested in uh, conservative municipal uh, power. And I think they'll be very interesting. So uh, by implication of what you just said, you weren't terribly impressed with Cameron or, or indeed, indeed Blair? Oh, no, complete disasters. Absolute total disasters. And I can't imagine anything worse. I mean, look at it. I mean, let's leave aside Iraq and Libya, which are both their signature tunes, which are both utter failures, and both could have been successes. Uh, the actual military initial thing was fine. This complete, total misunderstanding and inability to understand that what happens after the invasion is more important than what happens during almost. Anyhow, complete mess on foreign policy, complete mess on... Uh, NHS, both of them, in my view, destroyed, been arch destroyers of the National Health Service. No, I mean, we have to learn. These people keep on lecturing us about apprenticeships. They, they've never had an apprenticeship. They've never served in government before. Now, of course, it's difficult when we have these long periods. Alternating power is how we work best in the uh, British political system. And so these long periods of absence of power have a consequences. But um, been per I thought Blair's first four years, perfectly satisfactory. I'm totally in favour of him winning and voting for him. But equally, he tried to get you on board and you said no because you would, you thought his majority was too large. You no, were sort of worried no, about... No, 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 you oh. get completely wrong. Ah, I um, I'm glad you raised it. Uh, only because you kept the record right. 
He asked me in 96 to come and see him, and I did. We had a long and very interesting conversation. And he wanted to have it, it was clearly an SDP returners day. It was due in about two weeks' time. And I was obviously... You've been penciled in as a... Penciled in as a person. And actually, I decided I didn't want to do it for a variety of reasons. So I I approached the meeting, having discussed it in the family, that we say, you know, fine, you're doing a great job. Well, aren't you going to win the election? Then you don't need me. It's fine. I was enjoying myself in business, and I've been 20 years in business, I've been in politics. Um, I was never going to earn my money by being some quango or taking a, a penny off the government. Um, so um, it, we then got on to the euro. From his point of view, that was a great mistake. Because <laughs> <laughs> the more we talked about it, the less he clearly is zero understanding of it, and yet obviously massive commitment to it. So that was when I was first alerted to the fact he was wildly in favour of it. And, you know, in retrospect, thank God he didn't go for it straight away because if he had gone through, he'd got his in. And so that's why New Europe was created and then we worked with Rodney Leach and Business for Sterling. And we, we did actually build a quite... I mean, Cummings um, was part of that organisation. He's a very clever man, he, even then, a young boy. Well, a young boy, a young man. I mean, as I understand it, the original plan when it was a, when the Brexit question was yes or no was, was essentially to photocopy the material from, from that campaign. So, you know, the logo, the slogans. To... Yes, that's what we would probably have done. I think when we realised that I spoke to Matthew and... Also, Giza spoke to Matthew, and when we could see... This is Matthew Elliott. Yes, that they really already had a very good organisation. I mean, they were, they, were, they were dealing it. And it was based on the basis, and quite rightly so, that you UKIP could not be part of it. They, we were already shown the sort of skills of these young people, and uh, Cummings and uh, Matthew, and we developed these films for cinemas and I, would, I couldn't understand why they were doing that here but then I went to see them and I watched the reaction of young people in the cinemas to some of these things we did put them out and they were bloody good and I realized you know you, you you're too old for this sort of game there are whole new techniques that are coming um we're almost out of time but can I just ask you one final question you You've been a doctor, you've been a politician, you've been a businessman, and you've been a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, which of those gives you greatest pleasure? Oh, medicine, definitely. I love being a doctor. Absolutely loved it. I can't, uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. And um, I had a very marginal seat. And I mean, we tell the story. Apparently, it came out in the play. I'm out. I can't remember exactly whether it did or not. But uh, it, I mean, I went to a play, but uh, Debbie used to tease me that when an election was called, I would start looking in the back pages of the BMJ for a job. I mean, you could not guarantee. I mean, my majority went down 400, 700, you know, it was quite so. So, so I mean, so the fact that, you know, you were a foreign secretary at 38 and then you didn't have a ministerial job after that, that's that's not a source of regret. You're, you're quite sort of happy with... with the day I decided to leave... The Labour Party was the day I knew I could never become Prime Minister. So your ambition, if you've been Foreign Secretary, there's only one other place really you want to go. I I don't see any 
embarrassment and say he'd like to be prime minister. Of course I'd like to be prime minister. But in my own knowledge, it was absolutely definitely, I knew that I would not be prime minister if I left the Red Party. Remember, the choice for me in 81 was not normal choice. In a way, I, I was going, I would not have fought on the 83 manifesto in Plymouth. I have actually too much respect for my own Labour supporters to believe that they would have voted for me. So my only choice was whether to form a new party or to pack my stakes. And I would have said, Ghana back to medicine. And I would have been tough. And I probably wouldn't have done that. I think I would have probably gone into business. But yeah, I, 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 can imagine I, think, I can imagine the patients coming in and going, hang on, yeah. didn't you? Well, I think <laughs> actually my last time I could have gone back to uh, medicine was the 274 elections. And they were very tough. That was when my majority went to 400 and to 700. But if you had your time again, would, might you have stayed in medicine? Or was politics always, did you always feel that? I, 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 I won't say it in a sort of... Um, Je ne regret rien, believe. Uh, but I, I, I've had a fantastically interesting life and I have no complaints. I mean, I have no complaints. Um, I, I, I know even when ambition changed, I think that people don't understand it, but if you are sort of over-promoted and everything, you, you take the, the Office of Foreign Secretary, I can date the moment when I ambition was put aside and it was in uh, early November, I think, or late October, two very senior people who I admired greatly. One was Field Marshal Carver, who I'd asked to go to be our person who would go out to govern uh, Southern Rhodesia, as it then was, if we got the Anglo-American Pact. And effectively, it was what Soames did for um, Peter Carrington and uh, so he came to see me and um, a very senior um, submariner diplomat and they asked to see me late in the late my last appointment or something like that. so about 6.30 they came in to see me and they said to me uh, Secretary say you've told both of us quite frequently and we know you believe in it that you would never call a conference at Lancaster House unless it would succeed. You and I know that this, if we go for a Lancaster House conference now in December, it won't succeed. And we are really urge you not to call it. And that was tough. And this is on, on Zimbabwe? On Zimbabwe. But Ian Smith wanted to come for all the wrong reasons because he, in an election pending, he thought he could get more out of the government. And, um, Jimmy Carter was moving as president to thinking, oh, it's such a mess, you know. Bishop Mazzarella wanted to have, go to a conference and he was beginning to build up strength. But they didn't really want it, but they could see some merits in it. And, and Callahan was really pretty much wanting it and thinking it was good at the time. And, you know, and I, as foreign secretary, would, you know, would star in it, you'd have this whole thing, but the bloody thing wouldn't work. And so I, said, well, I'll think about it. But I, it was very effective lobbying. And I sort of sat there for a while and I came to the that right. 
you can't do it. So I then had to kill the bloody thing, which was quite difficult. And um, I persuaded Callahan to send um, Cledwin Hughes around the Commonwealth. And we knew Cledwin and we knew he was pretty good. And the Commonwealth didn't want it at all because they didn't, knew it wasn't right at the time. And the, we guided that process and he came back and said, it's too early, it's not the right time. In that run-up period to an election, a government doesn't take strong decisions. It's not, you would be very weak. You'd be tossed around by right-wing press and Ian Smith in London with a platform. It would have been very, it would have failed. And I, that's a decision I'm most proud of in my life. And I think it was a um, decision completely devoid of personal ambition. And I think that was easier to do from being there. You know, being foreign secretary, you didn't have to prove yourself at all. You just that you could actually listen to the rational arguments of why you shouldn't do something. And I think that does once you've reached that threshold, you look at politics. What it really is, it's a lottery. We all know. I mean, who would have thought Theresa May would have been prime minister the way that she was? And who would have thought a lot of people, Cameron himself, in many ways? So, you know, these are things that um, we shouldn't get yourself tremendously upset. It's a privilege to be an MP, apart from anything else. I mean, to think of Frank Fiatway, he was for a little while junior minister, but he's been hugely influential MP, even now. I mean, what he did over Green and all this sort of thing. And we are, I'm glad to say, coming back, there was a period when it was not so easy, but I mean, think of people like Leo Absey and his record of, uh, legislation and things like that. David Steele, right, he was leader of the Liberal Party and that's thing. But I mean, his bill on abortion. The whole idea that you can't have a really satisfying career as a backbench MP is nonsense in my view. So the whole idea that it's a reward system which is based on merit is nonsense. It's a reward system which has measures of merit, but also huge, huge luck in them. So I, I think to burn yourself up and think you've had a failed career. I mean, I don't believe in I don't believe in Enoch Powell things. All political careers end in misery or anything like that. Well, I will have your moments, you know. But I suppose the, I suppose the other category to that is don't if you get do get to the top, don't believe it's because of your own yes. amazing qualities. No, and it you got there because of. A huge amount of assistance at various things, not least your own constituents who stay loyal to you. Lord Owen, thank you very much. Pleasure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.